Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today I have as our guest, my friend and neighbor and a, a colleague that I would love to work with someday, Jerry Layburn. She is a highly, highly respected media executive, an entrepreneur. She broke the glass ceiling over and over again in her career. She is the founder and CEO of the Oxygen Media. She made history as the second woman to run a cable television network. And she is also a philanthropist who has championed many causes, particularly those empowering girls and women. In recent years, she has turned her attention to what she calls day one early learning community. And in this interview, we're going to delve into Jerry's extraordinary life, her philanthropy, exploring how her upbringing, education, early career experiences and all have shaped her worldview. We will also discuss her business success, her philanthropic work, and the latest projects that I've alluded to as we aim to learn from her some pearls of wisdom for our own lives and careers. Jerry Laburn, what a privilege. Welcome to The Caring Economy. Hello, neighbor. <laughs> uh, so we should qualify for our guests. We're both neighbors in the sense that we live in New York, but we also are more close neighbors in the Hudson Valley, you and Ryan Cliff and me and, and Tivoli. Um, tell us, as we ask all of our guests, Jerry, please, a little bit about your, your life story in sort of a digest, where you were raised, how you were raised, how you found your way, uh, at least to your early career, please. Well, I think it's important that I start with the day that television arrived in our house on Quarry Lane in Martinsville, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. My mother had been a, a radio writer, actor, and producer. And when she got married, she had to give up her work. But as soon as we could get TV, she had TV brought in in 1950. So I was three. And uh, she said, hello, television. And the installer plugged it in and the television said, hello out there in television land. And oh my God, a three-year-old, the television, this machine is talking to me. And I would get dressed up for my favorite TV hero, Hopalong Cassidy. Uh -huh. And I would dress up and sit and try to please him. And I would sob because I wasn't sure he was going to make it to the next episode. And my father would sit there and say, don't worry, Jerry, he's coming back. It's a long series. And anyway, my mother claims I uh, asked her to spin me around and throw me into television land. But uh, <laughs> I, I have no memory of that. Um, but the great thing for me is I was one of three sisters and we had a baby brother and my sisters were packed in, like we were 18 months apart on mm -hmm. one side, two years. My older sister was uh, beautiful and perfect. And my younger sister was brilliant and charismatic. So my dad, who was a stockbroker said, you know what, you're gonna be my business daughter. And <laughs> he, he took me to business meetings when I was eight and nine and 10. He made me the treasurer of the family at five. He quizzed me on all the symbols of the New York and American Stock Exchange. And when I was 16, he had me run his back office for the summer, which I think my father must have been insane because that nobody in the right mind. And I had to enter all the transactions in pencil. I just what would he's thinking? 
anyway, um, I never took a business course. Um, and I never took a marketing course, but I had really good judgment. And I would go to these meetings with my father and I would, she would ask me, what do I think? And oftentimes I would say, run in the other direction. This is not important or this guy is not lying to you. And it just gave me a lot of confidence. So I never really was too afraid of business. Anyway, my mother had a creative background. My father had a business background and my mother's values were so built into all of us. It's like, you are not a good person if you don't go to bed exhausted every day. <laughs> you're not a good person if you're not improving the world. And, you know, she, she ran uh, the school bond issues and started the vocational education program and worked in the community college. And, you know, it just was like part of our life is mm -hmm. that you serve the community. I was going to be an architect. I went to Vassar College and mm -hmm. I loved city planning and uh, was very excited about it. Vassar College really shaped because there, the essence of it is go to the source. Don't believe anybody's interpretation of anything. Go right to the source yeah, and yeah. Quest, question everything. And um, so, you know, a second child is already born questioning everything. And Vassar's <laughs> mission, I just was like the perfect Water. <laughs> um, contrarian uh, and disruptor because of that. But in any case, I went to Philadelphia. I was working for an architect. And I met my husband, who was this amazing guy who was teaching kids in inner city Philadelphia how to make movies. These are high school kids who couldn't read or write. And it was such an exciting time in education. Mark Shedd was a superintendent of schools. There was free schools, parkway projects, open classrooms. And so I ended up going and getting a master's in education, but quickly realizing that the educational system was not something I was going to flourish in. Because it was so rigid that I loved kids and I wanted to make a difference for kids. Mm -hmm. um, so I started a research company. I had two little babies. In my research company, I was trying to try new kinds of art forms with kids because I didn't like the fact that people said kids only like this or only like that. I wanted to know for myself. I mm -hmm. go to the source. I'm going to go and right to the kids. It. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, along the way, I met this fantastic animator, Eli Noyes. And my husband and I were friends with him. And at one point, Eli Noyes' father had been the creative director for I IBM. And he died young. And Thomas Watson mm -hmm. called Eli and said, if you give me a proposal for something you'd like to do, I would like to fund it. And so Eli came to us, we wrote a proposal to market the work of independent filmmakers to television. And that was a pretty odd idea. The only independent filmmaker who was making television at that time was Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. And and so, but 
we knew this whole broad community of independent filmmakers who had characters living inside them like Jim Henson did. Mm -hmm. And that seemed so much better than being driven by toys or pre-sold films that they would only make animation that would be much poorer quality and not as interesting. Mm -hmm. And so we wrote a proposal to market the work of independent filmmakers to television. We got funded. Our first client was this fledgling, not yet on the air, Nickelodeon. We were the first production company they hired. Our idea was terrible. It was well-meaning. It was, uh, we thought that if you put kids in their own dreams, it would be a, it was, Nickelodeon was meant to be interactive right from the beginning because it got born in, Colum in Columbus, Ohio, part of the Cube experiment. So, you know, it was a great theoretical idea, but the truth is kids' dreams are scary. They dream about suffocation and abandonment and- A so, revenge. <laughs> yes. And so we, the, we did one using masks and we hired this unknown person named Julie Taymor. Wow. And we were her first uh, commercial project. And then Eli animated another- dream using color Xerox and um, you know it was a great brave idea but just terrible television so in the meantime they hired me and Eli and Kit to do a lot of the original uh, identification work so that's uh, that's how I got into this yeah fascinating so I, I want to go all fascinating Julie Taymor I mean what she went on to all these people uh, Eli Noyes love to hear more about that but first of all, go back to your dad. Well, your mom and dad were sound really like supportive and great role models for you. But your dad, I mean, am I wrong to think how exceptional he must have been to take in a young daughter and give her genuinely respect you so much to give you genuinely, authentically, truly those kinds of responsibilities and opportunities when his peer group would have said, what are you doing? Or don't you wish you had a son? Well, you did have a son eventually, but... Like, was he that exceptional? He was. I, and I, it's interesting. You're the first person ever to pick up on that. I believe that my father was the first person to hire a woman broker in New Jersey. Yeah. He um, trained three women who started out as his secretaries to become brokers. And they all became full brokers with the same kind of commission he had. And so he was a feminist before uh, Gloria Stein. The word, right, yeah. Yeah. And, and then the other siblings, where did they sort of end up in their life trajectory? Just briefly. Well, my, my sister, my older sister became an, a stellar OBGYN in Washington. And my younger sister is a Unitarian minister and an education entrepreneur. <laughs> so... We, everybody did well. My brother's a contractor, but, um, you know, it was just a very interesting childhood. I mean, yeah, I can imagine an exciting dining table um, at your house. Well, if, if, um, if we were watching TV and it was time for dinner, my mother would just turn off the TV and say, let's finish the show at dinner. So we would have to tell her the whole show and then come up with an ending for the show. So we, oh, wow. We were, uh, you know, some people think that's cruel, but 
but it was <laughs> fun. I mean, she was a fun mom. Yeah. Well, today you can actually watch the show later, right? You hit pause or record oh, or whatever, yeah. but that was really genius. And that obviously fueled all your creativity even more. Uh, the other thing you made reference to, and I'd never heard of this before, the Cube experience out of Ohio. What what was that? So this was uh, introduced, I believe, by Gus Hauser, who was at Warner. Mm -hmm. And it was an interactive TV experiment in the early, early days of cable. It was there before HBO, before any of the channels. And it, it was really... Uh, you know, it was so far ahead of its time, but it was uh, where you could participate in the shows and it didn't last very long, but it was a brave experience. And I guess maybe that was a precursor to things like Home Shopping Network and that kind of Absolutely. commercial interaction. Yeah. 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 Wild. So, um, so Nickelodeon, you really helped take that to stratospheric levels and then that was within the i'm challenging myself here was that was within the viacom universe right which is now paramount right right um so it was fledged under them it wasn't acquired by them it was acquired by viacom it started out as a, a cooperative venture between warner and american express and warner and american and american express had cable systems together and they had a programming company called Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment. Huh. And um, one of the great things about the early days of cable was that, uh, at least for Nickelodeon, there were such low expectations of what we were going to do. And uh, they, they basically thought it was a throwaway. We'll just run a bunch of educational programs and... Uh, we'll make the cable operators look good and that'll, you know, will help wire America. And that's all true. But the first three years of Nickelodeon's existence, they, the same day I was hired, they hired a boss came out of advertising to be the vice president in charge of Nickelodeon. And he had, he was absolutely the best mentor I could ever had because he had the worst ideas. He had the worst <laughs> management style. He was a command and control. This is in the, you have to understand, this is like 1980. Yeah. 1980 and the predominant style was command and control. The boss is gonna make the decisions. The boss is gonna tell you what to do. And he's gonna filter things from a spoke and that's that. We never had any meetings. He had low expectations for what we were going to do. He did a strategic plan for five years that said at the end of five years, we would be making $5 million a year as a steady state. And it's like, I am like, what the heck is he thinking? But he, he didn't have a feel for kids. He trusted only his old cronies from Los Angeles. So it was everything I didn't believe in. Mm -hmm. And in fair, yeah. yeah. And so I insisted that we test everything with kids and we didn't have money to do real research. So we, we got into a barter agreement with the Children's Museum where we would give them equipment and we would come over and test stuff. But 
You know, that was a great thing for all of yeah. us to be around kids and to learn. I was the only one with kids and my kids, <laughs> poor darlings, would cry, please, mommy, no more TV. And <laughs> sometimes I would just make them get into the um, pull out couch and watch for hours, these horrible. Yeah, uh, focus group. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, he he didn't really trust anybody but his old friends yeah so he did not last very long yeah. and um bob Pittman was running mtv and mm -hmm. bob had exciting ideas and the idea that bob was treating the audience of mtv like they were really special folks mm -hmm. and that they deserved to be talked to the way that they wanted to be talked to. Mm -hmm. And I was just watching everything they did. And when uh, there was this separation from my boss, he basically looked at me and said, you know what? I don't know what to do with you, but I know I should just watch. And there's nothing that would please me more than to have a school marm turn this place around. And Love that's it. exactly what happened. And, and he did, probably. But, you know, I, it was like a, I was like shot out of a cannon because I'd been watching. I kept a notebook. I'm such a nerd. I had a notebook of what I will do if I ever get a chance to run this place. <laughs> and we, the first thing I did was I took everybody, the all 20 people that worked for Nickelodeon off to an offsite. And basically said, hey, you guys, we've been here for three years. We know what's wrong. Do we have anything right? And so we had one sheet where, what do we have right? And what do we not have right? And I'm telling you what we didn't have right was many more pages than what we did have right. And you could tell that some of the people wanted to be part of this um, new team managed effort. Mm -hmm. And some of them really felt queasy mm -hmm. at the idea that we were going to make decisions together and that we were going to brainstorm and that we were going to listen to everybody. I mean, in the early days of, of my team taking over, our big hit, Double Dare, was created by our receptionist, two on-air promo producers, and our executive producer. I was trained as an open classroom teacher uh -huh. and that is what really shaped me as a manager because what your right. job is in an open education system is to figure out how you're going to reach each and every one of your kids mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how you're going to listen hard and watch hard and figure out what they're good at because mm -hmm. most people are very good at diagnosing what they're bad at and they don't nearly give themselves enough credit for what they're good at. Yeah, that is definitely true to your style, right? It's that collaborative. And I'm thinking of your dad again, because you were making that list. And that, I think, was training that started way back when, when your dad was asking you what you thought, you know, and you came with yeah. informed recommendations. Can you remind us with Double Dare, um, what was that program, the premise of it? And and how did you know, like, you were on to something? Well, um, it was a great idea. It was based on the 
childhood game of dare and double dare. And it had uh, a couple of components. It had question and answers. It had um, obstacle course. It had, uh, it was something else in between some stunts, but it was, it, it was, it was honestly every kid's fantasy. The obstacle course, you'd have to run through 10 stations and maybe you had to climb up a chocolate slide and, uh, <laughs> you know, end it up in a vat of whipped cream or stick your arm up a nostril and pull a flag out. <laughs> and um, the first day we shot, we had to, we, in order for this to be economical, we had to shoot five, four game shows in a day. So we go to shoot the first thing and I'm sitting in the bleachers. And as the kids come in and see the set, it is so beautiful. It's mind blowing. And I've never heard eight, nine and 10 years old say the words they did, but they were like, their minds were blown. And we start to shoot and the idea was you had to um, have tried everything to make sure kids could accomplish it. And the first thing was they had a flag in a bag of feathers and they didn't test it because feathers are so troublesome and they forgot to put the flag in the thing. So <laughs> they spent, the poor kids spent a whole minute and the whole place was a mess. Anyway, we only got one show shot and I thought, okay, we're, this is never going to work. I went home. And by Monday, we'd figured it out and and it went on the air the following Monday and it had a rating in cable land, an mm -hmm. average rating at that time was like a 0.6. And by Thursday, four days later, it was a 1.8. <laughs> and three weeks later, it was a 5.6, which I don't think ever they ever got a series got that kind of rating. It Amazing. was like it was lightning in a bottle, but you know we had developed everything with kids, and um, it it was it was pretty exciting. Yeah, I love this theme that you've had this recurring theme amplified at vast and beyond about go to the source, right? Like I always feel the same when I'm traveling. I want to. I've gone to places like North Korea. I want to inform my own view based on my own experience where it's possible. So, and I'm mindful of the time. So I'm going to ask you to take us to then Oxygen Media where you pioneered this, this women managed themed network. How, give us the sort of digest of that, if you would, Jerry. So uh, Marcy Carsey and I had been friends for a long time and my stay at Disney was very exciting in that I got to tackle new problems, but it was clear they thought they were getting a, um, corporate executive. And I am definitely not a corporate executive. I'm a builder. I'm a disruptor. And uh, they, I always felt like anybody who told me where we were going to have problems was like on the team. They didn't have that attitude. It was very much say what I say or don't say anything. And so I got out of there pretty fast. And um I went to see my friend Marcy and it's like, you know what? I don't think there's ever been a woman owned and operated network. What do you think? I, and Marcy was, I have always thought that was a good idea. And then we thought, well, 
who could take it over the top? Who could help us on a marketing basis? And that was Oprah Winfrey. And we went out to see her and she said, I'm going to think about it. And uh, I went out a couple more times to spend time with her. And then three months later, she called up and said, I'm in. And so we were very high profile. We were on the cover of Forbes magazine and we were trying to do something that was way ahead of its time. It was, again, the other theme that goes on through my life is interactivity. You know, how do we include people? How do we serve and deliver? And the idea was how can we combine computing with television? And I had been working with the Imagineers, uh, the brilliant Imagineers at Disney. Mm -hmm. And uh, we came up with this concept of convergence. But mm -hmm. it's basically happened, not in the way we imagined, but uh, we were way ahead of our time. But it enabled us to raise a lot of money because Falk Allen was believed in a wired world. And, um, and bankers told us, don't do any television, just do the internet. But then you remember, this was 1998 and 2000. Burst. Yeah, 2000, yeah. the bubble burst. So we had TV, so we survived. went back to TV and we survived. And uh, it just, it was not the, it was not the finish that I, any of us wanted. There was an economic downturn and our investors were tired and we ended up selling to NBC and NBC ended up turning it into a crime channel. And mm -hmm. if you think about, you know, it was a network, my my dog, my kids have always been involved in everything I've done. I mean, Sam would sob and tell people I was a housewife because he was so embarrassed about Nickelodeon. But <laughs> Emmy, Emmy, um, I asked her to write a white paper of if we're gonna do a network for young women, she was 21 at the time, what should it be? Mm -hmm. And she wrote this magnificent paper Mom, please create a place where women don't have to shrink to fit. And that includes giving them their own comedy. Let them do their own prank shows. But mm -hmm. let women own the full range of things the way you did with Nickelodeon and kids. And by the way, I'm still a teacher. I've always been a teacher. And at Nickelodeon, right. our theory was play to learn. At mm -hmm. Oxygen, our theory was play to learn. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing now in early education was play to learn. So yeah. you can't, nobody can say you're ever a former educator. No, lifelong teacher and learner. I think it goes both ways. Amen. Um, so let's let's go there then. Let's literally and figuratively to Poughkeepsie. A, I love that you are the self-appointed ambassador of Poughkeepsie. I'd love to hear about that. And then we want to talk about day one. So let's start with Poughkeepsie, which is, a town near and dear to us. It needs help. I think uh, urban renewal did a lot of damage, even though there's beautiful places like Vassar's campus. But what's that all about? I mean, what a great challenge you set to others by becoming the self, even on your LinkedIn profile, the self-appointed ambassador Poughkeepsie. And so I know anybody, I, Toby, I don't think I've uh, sat next to you at dinner since I've been working in Poughkeepsie, but I think people actively tried not to sit next to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the um, 
So I was on the board of ACID for 23 years, and I was always concerned about how come Vassar is not more involved with Poughkeepsie. And actually, in the early years of Vassar, Vassar was very involved. And Poughkeepsie is a magnificent immigrant city that's just had, you know, Irish, Italian, Polish, uh, Jamaican, Hawken, and so there were all these fantastic immigrant communities and you're quite right, city planning came and basically, this is a story for all fringe cities across mm -hmm. America where they just bulldozed neighborhoods and separated cities. And the architecture in Poughkeepsie, the, the value of these buildings amazing. are amazing. So when um, I, I decided in 2016 that I should just take an assessment of what would be the best use of my, the rest of my life. And I went off all my corporate boards because um, I didn't think that was the best use of me. And I thought the best use of me would to work, be to work to bring Poughkeepsie back to life. And so I met with a guy, a very interesting man named Michael Murphy, who started Mass Design. Michael Murphy worked with Paul Farmer in Rwanda and Haiti, and he formed this nonprofit architecture firm. Mm -hmm. And one day the Dyson Foundation, Rob Dyson from Poughkeepsie, called Michael. He knew Michael well, he knew his father. He said, Michael, when are you, you're saving the rest of the world, when are you gonna come to Poughkeepsie? And so Michael, started an office in Poughkeepsie in 2017 or 18. And we got to meet and I thought, wow, this is exciting. And their ideas about how do you turn Poughkeepsie around seemed exactly right to me. And they have had a tremendous effect. They're doing the new scenic Hudson uh, headquarters in an old factory building on Parker Avenue. They did the Academy on Academy, which is an interesting food court and apartment building and WeWork facility, but we're trying to bring life to downtown mm -hmm. Poughkeepsie. But I, I have a friend named Mark Rodan who originally tried to get me interested in uh, Poughkeepsie. And, you know, he just asked me questions like, if we're going to do this, you've got to figure out about the school system, you've got to figure yeah. about the drugs, you've got to figure all these things out. So I start with the school system and I start with the mayor and I go into the mayor, magnificent man, Rob Rollison, who's now a state senator. But I go into Rob's office and I said, hey, you know, I want to spend the rest of my time uh, helping kids. And that's what I do. And uh, if you are interested in that, if you're willing to say that we're gonna put kids first here in Poughkeepsie, I'll come and work and be your unofficial self-appointed ambassador for Poughkeepsie at large. And he mm -hmm. said, you're it and I'm in. <laughs> and, and we worked really beautifully together. And he just was such an open guy. Everybody loved working with him. And is and, that how you started day one early learning? Well, then I started to, then I did a research project with support from the Dyson Foundation to figure out where could we make the best impact. And 
the truth is that in all these fringe cities um, and many of our big urban areas, kids from under-resourced neighborhoods are going to school two years uh, developmentally challenged. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to kindergarten, they go at th the developmental age of three. Pandemic has made it so that they actually are going three years behind. Mm -hmm. And the Poughkeepsie schools graduation rate was around 50%. Five so, zero. Five zero. Wow. And so it was like, okay, well, we had we got a new superintendent and the new superintendent and the mayor forged an alliance and another great person from Poughkeepsie. It's, you know, it's like, there's so many great people in these places that just mm -hmm. need to be uh, encouraged. Yeah. Rob Watson, who grew up in the projects of Poughkeepsie is at the Harvard Education Redesign Lab. And mm -hmm. he, he opened all the doors for Poughkeepsie. So we got to be a children's cabinet that's backed by Harvard. We got adopted by the Harlem Children's Zone and they've just done a strategic plan for Poughkeepsie. So you can't, there's nothing that anyone could do by themselves, but mm -hmm. just everybody saying, let's go, let's do something. Mm -hmm. The mayor gave uh, the, the park at Mont 35 Montgomery to this consortium that we were part of that was developing a youth opportunity union. Mm -hmm. The county executive gave a pledge of 25 million. We have a new county executive who is working harder than I've ever seen anybody, Bill O'Neill, to get a, a, you know, another uh, 25 million. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, there's energy. It's, yeah. we're, we're all trying to unlock the tremendous potential in Poughkeepsie. It sounds like you're getting traction. I mean, you cited that 50% graduation rate. So clearly you're tracking data. Um, is it still a little too early or, or yeah, are you seeing results already? So what we do have data that's encouraging. So I went to the head of Vassar's early learning lab schools and Vassar has uh, some of the oldest and best nursery schools in the country, their laboratory schools. Mm -hmm. I went to Dr. Julie Reese, who's a research scientist, a child development expert, mm -hmm. an administrator of two schools and a teacher trainer. And I said, hey, do you have any interest in working with me on this? And we spent a summer, we got Vassar interns, we got money from the Dyson Foundation, and we saw that it was worse than we thought. Mm -hmm. There was very little that was organized childcare. Most people were relying on relatives or um, things that were, you know, cobbled together. And, and there wasn't any real, um, really reliable way for people mm -hmm. to get high quality early learning. And so we decided that rather than just have a school, we would start with a teacher apprentices, apprenticeship training program, and it's a boot camp. Mm -hmm. Most people who are trying to solve this problem of how do we have enough child care 
for our kids until we realize that a kid's brain is at its most important, fastest learning between 18 months and three years old. If we're not meeting kids at that age, they we are going to miss out on the geniuses and the potential mm -hmm. of these kids. And for some bizarre reason, America is dead last of all industrialized nations. Every other nation understands the architecture of the brain is mm -hmm. formed by play to learn, by serve mm -hmm. and return, by interchange, by relationships. And so we started this training program. We have uh, done it now for two years. We do them in cohorts for 11 weeks. We pay them to take the program, $500 a week. And we've had 40 graduates, uh, 36 of them are working with kids in paid jobs. Uh, and if they don't make a living wage, we pay a supplement so they do make a living wage. Until we as a nation recognize that our people with our babies need to be teachers and they need to be trained. Mm -hmm. We don't believe they need a bachelor's degree. We believe they need to love kids and they have to take being a teacher serious. Training. Seriously, yeah. And it's so successful. And so we got an opportunity last summer. There was a, a nursery school that uh, the public schools had rented but couldn't use because it wasn't, it didn't work for their purposes. So they sublet it to us. We had six weeks to open our school. We hired people who had been trained in the program. It is such a joy the excitement, yeah. the bubbling, the physics of this, everybody focused on the same things. I mean, our program with the teachers is the same as the program with the parents and the same as the kids. Sure, It's, it's all about, it's that thing of figuring out what's special about you, Toby. Yeah. What's your superpower? Yeah. And it's for the teachers, it's for the parents, and it's for the kids. There's two things I love about that, Jerry. One is it is a constant theme you cited at the beginning of this interview and now toward the end. Go to the source, remember that, but also the interactivity, right? You use that in your media career, and what you just cited is that, right? The dialogue, the back and the forth, particularly at that year and a half to three-year period in these young minds. So I love that consistency. The other thing I like is in addition to your positive results you're seeing is that this is a scalable model, right? You're getting it right here. It can grow. It could be replicated elsewhere. You've got through this set of stakeholders that you uniquely brought together with your colleagues gives me hope that this could be done in all these other cities, fringe cities and beyond. So um, I wonder if someone wants to know more or get involved, is there, is there a website they should go to or yes. how, how to learn more? It's dayoneearlylearning.org. We, we also are on Instagram and you get a much better feel. Want to get involved in kind, talent, time, treasure, whatever. Um, these are the kinds of things that warm my soul. I do look at Poughkeepsie every time I go through there and I think two things. One, wow, urban planning has just cordoned off pockets of this community that will be forever stuck unless we do something about that. And two, the potential for it to just go bigger and better and more inclusive is so, the bones are so good in Poughkeepsie. It's in the Hudson Valley. Just one last question. We always ask our guests, Jerry, um, 
pearls of wisdom, any mantra you find yourself self saying all the time or words of wisdom you give certainly to young women and young people, but also for perhaps people who are a little bit older in their careers, either disrupted or thinking about a pivot because, because. So I'll start with the young. What I always say to young people is uh, your brains are never going to be any better than they are right now. So don't wait around thinking you're supposed to be polite. You know, every person, all of the ideas I have at 75, I formed in my 20s. So I don't know anybody who didn't do the same thing. And if you're you're really going to be disruptive you need to let get that brain thinking so sooner rather than later yeah yeah don't wait to think and by the way you think especially for women oh if i'm just compliant then i'll keep my job no and the other thing i say to people is listen hard to what the people closest to the problem are saying and don't let the people who are the bosses take their ideas and not credit their idea. So if you, if you hear somebody say what Sarah said 10 minutes later, say, that's so great that you're supporting Sarah's idea. That is really important for young people and for everybody because the idea that the highest ranking person is going to make the best decision is insane. I agree. The person who's going to make the best decision is the one who understands the problem the best. And anyway, so that's that. Uh, For older people, I think they should take time and think about what they care about the most. And I've, every time I've gotten stuck at some point in my career, I've done this process that was invented by a woman called the artist's way. It's published book. I, you know, it's a very simple process where mm-hmm. you wake up 30 minutes earlier than you normally do. Don't brush your teeth. Don't drink any water. Just sit and write stream of consciousness. Never read it again. Never edit it. Never judge it. Just write whatever, you know. And for me, sometimes I could spew for four days and then mm-hmm. that's it. That's all you can spew. You can't spew anymore. Then you start prioritizing your just the day-to-day stuff. And about two months in, you start dreaming more. And then I woke up. The first time I did this was when I was not happy at Disney. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and I wrote on the piece of paper, oxygen. That's what the world needs. Breathing room, breathing room for creative people, breathing room for consumers. And, you know, and then that was that. I love it. I never knew I should have asked you at the start, the genesis. I love that. And of course, we can give oxygen to good things or bad things. So I love that whole process. Jerry Layburn, thank you so much. The the incredibly successful media executive and entrepreneur and founder, co-founder of Day One Early Learning Community. I love all the lessons you've shared today from go to the source to interactivity. Thank you so much for joining us on The Caring Economy. Well, I have had such a blast. The final thing I will say is please engage with kids. 
Yes. Please, please treat them like they're interesting people because they are, but they need you. They need you to read to them. They need you to sing to them. They need you to play hide and seek with them. Our kids need play more than ever. They've been shut away and they need you badly. Amen. I'm going to let you coach me on how to, I've had some uh, teens on my show, um, but I'll take your challenge and see how I can use my platform to engage with that when I sit next to you at dinner next. <laughs> Excellent. Take care. Have a great weekend. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.